This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Story, and it's time for our culture beat, and we love to talk about what's on TV. We love it. By the way, in the night of HBO's new show, terrific. Just check it out. I mean, it's as good a law and procedural as you've ever seen. Richard Price, the great writer, written the screenplay. Fantastic. And we love Shark Tank, and we also love Judge Judy. You are about to enter the courtroom of Judge Judith Scheindlin. The people are real. The cases are real. The rulings are final. This is Judge Judy. And we love this show. And luckily for me, I've had a change in my schedule. So now I'm home a lot of times when this thing's coming on. And I watch it. And now I'm, I'm addicted to it. I mean, I just, if it's on, I'm watching. I don't yep. care if I'd seen it before. She's so entertaining. And by the way, there's a lot of deep social and cultural stuff going on in that show. And personal responsibility is a big one for her. And lying and cheating. I mean, she's just like old school. And so we're taking a look at a case right now. And this episode uh, involves a very animated plaintiff, a 30-something-year-old apartment renter named Karina Roy. The defendant's name is Nicole, a 50-something who is Karina's landlord. Judge Judy opens with a description of the roommate's complaint. Miss Roy, according to your complaint, you rented a room in defendant's home. Yes. You had an argument over Tupperware. Yes. As a result of that argument, you say you were assaulted, given an eviction notice, forced to move. You want the defendant to pay you for the assault, pro rata for the rent, your moving expenses. Tell me about the argument. And here's Karina's very interesting argument. Well, um, the morning of June 6th, I woke up and um, I had been looking for my Tupperware throughout that week. And What um, Tupperware? This Tupperware right here. Oh, that Tupperware. Yeah, that Those Tupperware. Those two pieces. Yes. <laughs> So throughout the week and in the morning before work and everything, that's when I had time to ask her. And this was the third time that I had asked her for my Tupperware, and she was changing the subject when two other times I wasn't getting um, direct answers, and where she was directing me, they weren't there. Like the first time I asked her... I'm not interested. Okay. Just get to the so point. So I said, look, if I don't get my Tupperware back, I'll just take it off my rent. And she said, well, don't you dare. And she threw her blankets off her, with, which every morning... Just a second. Are you telling me you went into her bedroom? Yes. To ask let me finish my question. You went into her bedroom to ask for those two pieces of Tupperware? Yes. For the and she was in bed? Uh, yes. <laughs> so the landlord was in bed and threw her blankets off. Karina continues. Go ahead. So she threw her blankets off. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. But, you know, every other... Just man- answer the question. <laughs> I mean, she threw her blankets off mm-hmm. and said what? Don't you dare, you know, and she threw her blankets off and she ran to the door and slammed it open. She said, I ate it. And she stormed into the kitchen and I followed her and she um, opened her Tupperware cupboard and um, forced all of her Tupperware on me like that. Let me explain something to you. Don't get dramatic with me. (laughs) Okay, go ahead. So she... And threw all of her Tupperware on me. She didn't throw all of her Tupperware on you. Yes, she did. Yes, did she, she did. Miss Roy, you're standing there, so what is what you're telling me? She took out each piece of Tupperware from the cupboard and threw it at you? No. She has a Tupperware cupboard, and she put her arm on one end of that Tupperware cupboard, and with all of her force, threw it on me, and I was standing behind her, and it landed on me. Is that the assault that you're talking about? That's one of them, yes. <laughs> but there's more. <laughs> and when was the other one? 
Then she kept standing there and screaming, you know, how dare you, and don't you dare, don't you even dare, Karina, shame on you, shame on you. Shh, listen to me. Like this. I hear you. Okay, go ahead. Well, this is what she was yelling at go me. Go ahead. And I said, you know, Cole, you said you were going to take care of my Tupperware, and, every, you know, and on Sunday your maid came, and I haven't seen him since. And she said, there's your answer, Karina. Look in that cupboard there. Look in that one. And I, ran, I go over there, and I open it up, and it's kind of on the ground, so I kneel down, and there's my Tupperware, and I grab it. And when I'm down, she's leaning her whole body into me, pointing her finger in my face. How dare you? Don't you even dare. Shame on you. That's it. I want you out of here. And she hit my head with her finger. She had all of her weight on me next karina is careening out of control she isn't finished so what happened next so then i got up and i'm just like backing away i'm like backing away i'm walking out of the kitchen you know and um she threw her hand up and that's it karina i want you out of here in 30 days and i said good and anna stood up and said hey and looking directly at me and said hey hey the babies the babies as she's looking at me and I had not said anything through this whole entire time. What did she say? The babies. The babies. Hey! Quiet. Judy now turns to the defendant, the landlord. Okay, so you gave her a 14-day notice. My assistant and I decided... Shh. Okay. You have a problem with giving her her prorated rent? Um, I do, Your Honor, because although she physically moved out, her property was still in, in the room. I don't consider that a cup and her teddy bear leaving property in the house so that you couldn't yeah. rent the room again if you wanted to. All right. Now, next. You want her to pay your moving expenses. Is that right? Yes. Wrong. So like, we just dealt with that. You don't get your moving expenses. And so what about, what about the payment for damages this poor lady received from her landlord's Tupperware assault? Now, damages due to the assault... I'm prepared to hear you if you want to tell me what your damages were as a result of the assault. Because of this, I mean, the way I physically felt, okay, was just like somebody just ripped my, I mean, I just felt hollow in here. I mean, I felt, I did not, I was, did Jeez. not feel stable at all. My driver You're not stable. <laughs> Anybody that walks into a bedroom, somebody's sleeping in their bed, to ask for two pieces of Tupperware and start an argument with them while they're in bed over two pieces of Tupperware isn't too stable. Okay. So Karina got leaned on and hit on the head with a finger and made it feel hollow inside her. Her heart was ripped out and her made her feel unstable. Here's Judge Judy awarding Karina for her early apartment dismissal. We also get their reactions. $199.92. That you are entitled to. Thank Judgment you. for the plaintiff in the amount of $199.92. Thank you. You want to give it back a bear? Certainly. Perfect. Bird, would you take care of the bear in the cup? Sure. Parties are excused. You may step out. She fought with all the tenants. She fought with me. She fought with my two sons who don't even live there anymore. Absolutely not. I'm such a meek, shy person. I bowed down to them and I stayed out of their way. Meek and shy. Definitely not, Karina. Well, we love Judge Judy. We love Shark Tank. Yeah. And we bring one or the other every week here on Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, The Most Epic Road Trip Ever. And it's following Lewis and Clark and their group of men, the Corps of Discovery, along their two-and-a-half-year adventure exploring the American West. And here's our own Alex Cortez with our fifth feature on what happened on these exact days in history, the period of June 25 through July 7, over 200 years ago. Here's a member of the Corps of Discovery and one of the journalers, Joseph Whitehouse. Wednesday, the 27th. We halted this day. We then formed a temporary breastwork with pickets. A protective barrier that was called breastwork because it was breast high. Back to White House on the need for it. In order to defend ourselves against the Indians, fearing that they might make an attack on us in the night. The captains were informed by one of the Canadians who were with us, who had traded up that river. The 300 warriors live at a village up the said river. In just a few days later, here's William Clark. 29th June, Friday. After making some arrangements and inflicting a little punishment to two men, we set out at half past four o'clock and proceeded on. Clark speaks about inflicting punishment so nonchalantly like it was an old bore to him in his military life. But later that day, he expanded upon the episode with the official notes from the court-martial that produced the punishment. A court-martial will set this day at 11 o'clock to consist of five members for the trial of John Collins and Hugh Hall, confined on charges exhibited against them by Sergeant Floyd, agreeable to the Articles of War. The court convened and proceeded to the trial of the prisoners John Collins, charged with getting drunk on his post this morning out of whiskey put under his charge as a sentinel, and for suffering Hugh Hall to draw whiskey out of the said barrel intended for the party. Collins was the lookout for the night, and the only thing he looked after was himself. They each got a daily ration of whiskey, but Collins thought another little drop wouldn't hurt anybody. But one turned to two, two to three, and is seducing his friend into trouble with him too. Clark continued. To this charge, the prisoner pled not guilty. The court, after mature deliberation on the evidence, are of opinion that the prisoner is guilty of the charge exhibited against him, and do therefore sentence him to receive 100 lashes on his bare back. Hugh Hall was brought with taking whiskey out of a keg this morning, contrary to all order, rule, or regulation. To this charge, the prisoner pleads guilty. The court find the prisoner guilty and sentence him to receive 50 lashes on his bare back. Notice that Hall received a lesser punishment than Collins. Was it because he pled the right way? Because he knew he was guilty? And was humble enough or not stupid enough to say otherwise? Or was it because he wasn't the leader of this drunkenly merry band? Clark doesn't say, we don't know. The commanding officers approve of the sentence of the court and orders that the punishment take place at half past three this evening, at which time the party will parade for inspection. 
Over a month into the journey, William Clark is still setting the tone, and Meriwether Lewis appears to be off in his own world. Here's the author of The Essential Lewis and Clark, Landon Jones. This is a serious offense in, in their world. And, and because they had a limited supply of alcohol, and they knew it was going to run out before they got back, all the men cared about this. And so when these guys broke into the alcohol and took more than their share, it caused a fair amount of anger. And the punishment was reasonably severe. Yeah, I might call that more than reasonably severe. I was spanked as a kid, <laughs> 50 or 100 lashes on the bareback. Woo! That is something else. But who knows? If I were on that court martial, maybe I would have laid down the same punishment. Landon said they knew that they would run out of alcohol on the trip, and Stephen Ambrose, the author of Undaunted Courage, put a number on it, estimating that their supply would last only 104 days on what would be an 860-day journey. Now, the men didn't know the journey would be that long, but they knew a lot of it would be without their alcohol. Given I'm a guy who has one drink every single night, I feel their anger. One thing is for certain, William Clark was very proud of how they handled the situation. A court-martial of the party we have always found very ready to punish such crimes. Now, the only thing worse than that was sleeping on guard duty. Which would put everyone at the risk of an unknown attack and possibly death. Slightly worse than not having your alcohol fix. Ambrose writes that alcohol in any form has always been a curse and a necessity to military leaders. Drunkenness causes more discipline and personnel problems than any other cause, but soldiers must have their alcohol. Frederick the Great put it best, if you contemplate some enterprise against the enemy, the commissary must scrap together all of the beer and brandy that can be found so that the army does not lack either, at least during the first few days. In other words, don't run out of the booze until there is no turning back. And if you are going to run out, run out having had an equal share, so at least all of you will be equally miserable. Collins and Hall violated this all-important principle. A few days later, it's the 4th of July, and their nation had declared independence from Great Britain only 26 years ago, in their lifetimes. It was a relatively new celebration, but they were going to celebrate, even if it was by themselves. They had their big keelboat with uh, two cannons on it, one in the bow and one in the stern, and they fired them off. You know, they fired one in the morning at sunrise and one in the evening at sunset. And so they were patriotic. I mean, you can imagine them all standing a little taller when that happened. With this action, they inaugurated the very first Independence Day celebration west of the Mississippi. Think about that. Here's William Clark. July 4th, Wednesday, 1804. Set out early pass a creek about 15 yards wide coming out of an extensive prairie. As this creek has no name, and this day is the 4th of July, we name this Independence Creek. We close the day by an extra gill of whiskey. It's what they call the creek Independence Creek, and they, and they name it for Independence Day. 
But this is important. A, a lot of the creeks that they were encountering already had names, and they'd been named by their friends or the voyageurs or the Spanish or someone. And so Lewis and Clark initially did not have that many opportunities to do naming. So when they got to Independence Creek, or the creek they, they called Independence Creek, they could finally put an, an assertive American name right on it. And as the journey goes on, they use the naming of creeks and places as sort of a reassuring matter. I mean, you feel safer when you know the name, when the name is something that you've grown up with. And so they started calling them after days of the week, and they started calling creeks after the names of the men on the expedition. They called, they called a creek for York, uh, Clark's slave. And it, it was psychologically sort of bracing and reassuring for them to be able to put um, an, an English-American name right on it. Stephen Ambrose concluded on this day, perhaps the captains grew more philosophical under the influence of the extra whiskey, as happens to earnest young men carrying heavy responsibilities who find themselves in the Garden of Eden as full dark comes on and the campfire burns down on their nation's birthday. Clark's last journal entry that day went, So magnificent a scenery, in a country thus situated, far removed from the civilized world, to be enjoyed by nothing but buffalo, elk, deer, and bear, in which it abounds. Ambrose continued, Possibly the captains puzzled over why God had created such a place, and failed to put Virginians in it, or put it in Virginia. And great job as always, Alex, on the most epic road trip ever. And we're trying to put you and Lewis and Clark's, well, in their shoes for this amazing two and a half year trip that redefined this great country. This is Lee Habib. This is our American stories, Lewis and Clark's story. And we'll keep this one going right until the end. More after these messages. American stories, and we recently had an interview with John Brinkus. You may know him as the Sports Science Guy on ESPN. He's a big-time producer, and John still hosts Sports Science as they break down today's biggest sports stars and look at their abilities in a scientific way. With having over 1,500 shows, they include segments like giant NFL linemen showing off their strength or the jumping ability of NBA basketball stars. They even had a show dedicated to the hot dog eating contest. And that's, of course, in Coney Island every July 4th. Recently, John decided to try a new show. He launched his first ever podcast, The Brink of Midnight. In the show, John explores the moment where the guest credits the point when their life changed forever and made them into the person they are today. These guests span from athletes, artists, business people, and many other different fields. 
Here is Mr. Sports Science himself, John Brinkus, on how his podcast went from idea to reality. Music is a huge outlet for me. It's just sort of the thing that I do um, to unplug and unwind. And I put my guitar down for years while I was building our business. My wife comes walking by my office one day as I'm playing guitar and is singing over a song that I'm playing. And I'm just playing just as a pure release. I'm like, oh, my God, you're an amazing singer. Like, that's an amazing melody. Where would you come up with this? She said, well, I was classically trained in the Long Beach Opera Company. I said, what? And she's like, I've told you this like 50 times. This is 10 years into marriage. So we ended up writing a Christmas song. We put a Christmas song out, and it ended up charting. Sirius XM picked it up in heavy rotation on, on their Holly station. And the chart literally was like Madonna, Bruce Springsteen, Lizzie and John Brankus, Bing Crosby. <laughs> like, how does this happen? So we created our band, Brink of Midnight, um, first. And we have, you know, at brinkofmidnight.com, we have all of our music that's up there. And we said, look, music is one avenue where we can put out positive energy, and a podcast is another one. And my wife really being um, the mastermind behind it all, you know, she's our lead singer for the band, and, and she, especially during this last election cycle, just said, look, we need to spread positive energy. We need to get positive stories out there because there's so much negative energy. You can just feel it. It's something that you can almost taste how negative the world feels right now. Um, and I don't know if it's real or not, but I said to Lizzie, I'm like, you know, you're right. And I've been very fortunate to have a, you know, to work with some amazing people um, in all different kinds of fields, you know, and from philanthropy to finance to business to athletics. Um, and I said, you know what, let's get these stories out because everybody has an amazing moment where this event happened, and then from that point forward, nothing was ever the same. So we started um, the Break of Midnight podcast. With his guests sharing their Brink of Midnight moment, John can sit back and hear some amazing stories. The Rob Riggle episode that we had has an amazing story where the actor-comedian Rob Riggle was... Um, he was actually flying in the Marines, and he had been flying for three years, and they have you for eight years, and he, he just was going to be a career pilot. That was it. His friend ended up calling him from Chicago, and he said, hey, Rob, you know how in college you were kind of a goofball and making people laugh? They have a name for it up here in Chicago. It's called improv, and people are making money at it. You should, you should go into comedy. And here he is in the Marines flying planes. He's like, I've never even considered this. So he went down to the beach, and he said a prayer and was reflecting and said, you know, well, what, what is it that I should do? And he decided, you know what, I don't want to abandon my military service, but, what, but if I'm a pilot, then I'm in for eight years, and then you have to serve another nine, and you get full retirement. He said, but if I transfer to ground troops, then I'm only in for five years, so I only have to serve two more years. And then he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to transfer to be on the ground troops. And he wrote down on a piece of paper while sitting on a beach. He said, I will be on Saturday Night Live. Ten years, nearly to the day, he ended up being cast on Saturday Night Live, and that obviously launched him into the, the world of entertainment. He comes out of nowhere, gets a phone call, writes an intention down on a piece of paper, and 10 years later it comes true. A pretty amazing story. And all the podcasts have stories like that. I mean, the Ray Lewis episode 
um, where Ray wanted to, he, he was, grew up in a really, un, in an underprivileged environment. His mother, he, he, he was being raised by a single mother who was in an abusive relationship um, with her boyfriend. And Ray, at the age of 14, said, Mom, give me a deck of cards. And he took a deck of cards. And she said, what do you need these for? He said, don't worry about it. He would throw down a king and do 10 push-ups. He'd throw down an eight and do eight sit-ups. And he kept throwing cards down until he would do thousands of sit-ups and push-ups until he got to be big enough and strong enough to get that guy out of his house. And that, he said, was his big moment where he, he literally saw that he could be in control of his life. He didn't have to just accept bad things going on around him. He could change it and take matters into his own hands. In an upcoming episode, we have um, Antonio Holmes from the Steelers who made, I believe, the greatest Super Bowl catch ever because it won a Super Bowl. He grew up in the third poorest county in Florida, and he was one of five or six kids that all had different fathers, and he essentially, he was the oldest and essentially uh, the patriarch of the family. And when he was 12, he went to his grandmother and said, there is greatness inside of me that will never be unleashed if I have to be a father at the age of 12. And his grandmother said, you come to church with me, you live the right way, and I got your back. And he said, making that Super Bowl catch didn't change my life. But that one day with that one conversation with my grandmother is what defined me as a person. Just like those who have spoken on his show, John has a similar moment he likes to share. I was traveling. I was actually working on a comedy show in Aspen, Colorado at the Aspen Comedy Festival and looking, uh, scouting for talent. I was flying back to Los Angeles and had a pass through Denver. And I was traveling with um, a business associate. We had a ticket mix-up, and we got separated, so we weren't sitting next to each other. So I'm not even sure if I sat in the right seat, but I sat next to the most beautiful woman I had ever seen in my life. I fell instantly in love. And fortunately, there was a mechanical problem that forced us off the plane for five hours. And as we were all getting off the plane, I went up to the guy I was traveling with, and I said, I'll give you $100 to stay away from me. Just met the girl I'm going to marry. She calls her parents and says, I just met the guy I'm going to marry. And we were both dating other people at the, same, at the same time. We get back on the plane, and when we land in Los Angeles, we exchange information. Turns out we live two blocks away from each other on the same street in Los Angeles. And just do the odds on randomly sitting next to somebody falling in love with them, and living two blocks away from each other. And we've now been you know, happily married for 14 years. We have two wonderful children. And it's just those moments happen in everyone's life where the energy comes together and creates a moment where nothing will ever be the same. And with his show, John continues to push his life lesson, being positive. The one thing I would say about being positive um, a lot of people want to say, oh, that's just saying turn that frown upside down. You know? But it really isn't about that. It's about perspective. It's about what you see. Um, and I think that the idea of being positive is about what, do, what is it that you're looking at? What are you seeing at the time? Um, and in really dark moments, how do you keep your eyes focused on looking for the light? That, that's really the trick, is saying, how do I stay positive? 
And that's what we try and do here on Our American Stories. And it is perspective, and we have so much to be grateful for. And there's no screaming and yelling here, and there's no politics here. And it's just good stories, life-affirming stories, redemptive stories. Here on Our American Stories, John Brinkus's story, The Brink of Midnight Story. More after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell a lot of police stories on this show because what you get from the media is such a small slice of what actually happens on our streets. We all know how important trust is between police and citizens, so today we're going to take a deep dive into police accountability, the story about how one big police department polices itself. Joe Gamaldi has been a policeman for 11 years, born and raised in Long Island, New York. He spent three years with the MIPD and then transferred to the Houston Police Department. Joe is also the second vice president of the Houston Police Officers Union. We had a great talk with him earlier about policing the police, and here are some things we thought might surprise you. Let's start by getting a sense of just how big Houston is and what the police department has to handle. The Houston Police Department has approximately 5,200 officers um, we patrol a city of approximately 2.5 million, according to the last census. We're the fourth largest city in America. Um, about half of those 5,200 uh, will operate in the patrol function, and the other half uh, operates in the investigative portion of the department. And how does someone join HPD? It's a rigorous application process. Uh, you must have 48 college credits uh, in order to apply and obviously have a clean background record. As soon as someone puts in an application with the Houston Police Department, you know, it starts obviously with a physical examination, a medical exam, um, a, a background investigation. That is the first layer to kind of catching anything that may be red, uh, red warning signs for us. And then in addition to that, they go for a full psychological workup. And the idea behind that is let's catch anyone before they ever get on the department. It would take approximately three to four months once first contact is made for them to do a complete background, have you go through all the medical and psychological exams, and then get you uh, ready for the academy. And then, of course, there's a six-month academy before you hit the streets. And even with all these systems, some troublemakers will slip through the cracks. Or more commonly, some rookies will need some extra guidance. Here's Joe talking about a few of the ways that HPD polices itself. There's several layers. You know, I think the first is probably just an informal layer, which is just other officers looking out for other officers in issues of very small issues that they may see. You know, they may see an officer who handles a call in a way that they probably thought wasn't appropriate or didn't think was right, and they might tell them, hey, you know, that's not really the way you should have done it. You should have done it this way by policy. Uh, of course, we can move up into the more official things and something that was recently introduced or rebranded as an early warning system. And what that is, it's a department program that identifies officers who may have received a couple complaints in a short period of time. They don't necessarily have to be sustained complaints. It could just be accusations. 
And what they'll do is they'll be placed on an early warning system for approximately 90 days to evaluate if there's any training issues that need to be addressed, uh, such as, you know, additional classes at the academy or a refresher on certain topics. But also uh, the officer will have to meet with their sergeant more often than they normally would to just go over uh, the calls that they went on on that day or that week and how they handled those calls. So it's just kind of an added layer of protection to kind of catch anyone before they may, uh, you know, walk off the path, so to speak. Now, that system works for the vast majority of issues, but what about the officers who really do cross that line? Anytime you have an organization this big, you're going to have bad apples. And, and we, don't, we don't pretend to think that every single one of our officers is perfect. But what I think the misconception is from the public is that there's a, you know, a, a blue wall of silence. That, that will back up our officers no matter what they do. And, and I'm here to tell you, because I've been in the culture now for 11 years, that that's just not the case. When there's an officer doing something that they're not supposed to do, and especially when it, in regards to criminal activity, officers are going to step up, and they're going to point out that that officer is doing it, and we want them gone because they give the rest of us good officers a bad name. And, you know, specifically whenever I bring that up, someone's quick to mention, well, yeah, you may want the people who commit crimes out, but you guys don't want the officers who commit excessive force. And, you know, although I can't go into very specifics because of confidentiality, we had a case just a year ago where an officer used excessive force inside a DWI facility, and two officers reported that use of force. They wrote the letters to IED. They started the investigation, and as a result, the officer was was held to task, and he was fired as well as he should have been because he used excessive force. But our officers stepped up to the plate and made sure that that officer, you know, that someone was notified for what the officer did. And I think most people in the public don't think that that happens. And by the way, we have these accountability problems in private America and corporations. You know, the culture comes from the top in every department. Ultimately, that's what you'd probably find. And that's why we're going department to a department. And we started with such a big one like the Houston Police Department. And that example of cops reporting a fellow cop for using excessive force isn't at HPD an isolated incident. We actually had an officer who was leaving their assigned area to go visit with their significant other. What made this story more interesting was the fact that this officer was meeting with a significant other who was involved in drug activity and other criminal activity. Now, we may not have known about this except for the fact that other officers that worked with this officer actually turned that officer in and said, this person is leaving their assigned area, meeting with a criminal who happens to also be their significant other, and we don't know if they're involved in any drug operation or anything like that, but we know that there's something going on here, and those officers reported that. It's just, it's just another case of folks who think, well, our officers never tell on one another, and, and they're not policing their own. I, I just don't buy it. We are out there, and, and we're willing to speak up and, and say when someone is doing something wrong. And the subject here is policing the police, and we're talking with Joe Gamaldi, the second vice president of the Houston Police Officers Union, And we asked Joe to zoom out and share some of the statistics about complaints against police. And this was really surprising. We've had approximately 1,000 complaints last year. Okay, that is 1,000 complaints against our officers. 200 came from the general public. The other 800 or so came from within the department, supervisors on officers, officers on officers, officers on supervisors. Now, keep in mind, all of those complaints that we discussed, the 200 from citizens, were based on 2 million citizen contacts last year. 
Now, the 800 internal complaints were coming from people who were identifying conduct that should not have been taking place by an officer or sergeant, and it could be something minor. It could have been that they weren't wearing their seatbelt, or it could have been that they used excessive force. But the point is, most people don't understand just how much we police each other already. And such a great point. And again, as we as we had indicated, you know, you could look into corporate America and the leadership. Well, it comes from the top. And if you let people do bad things, well, people are going to do bad things. And if you have a, a, a culture of integrity, well, you're not going to have these problems. And that's why we like doing what we do here, painting any community with a broad brush. We just won't allow here, particularly folks who put themselves in harm's way. Just not going to allow it. And what we love about Joe is he's, he is not defensive about bad cops being there. And it sounds to me like their chief goal is to ferret these guys out because they know how bad it is for the Houston Police Department itself. Houston places such a high priority on rooting out bad cops that the police officers union actively encourages citizens to file complaints if they've been mistreated. We actually go out into the community and we preach, comply with our officers, and if you feel if you've been mistreated in any way, complain. And that is such a big thing for us to push to the community because we want them to know that we don't want officers out there disrespecting you. We don't want officers mistreating you in any way. And the only way that we know about it is if you tell us, if you complain on them, because otherwise we, we may not know. And I think it's a big step when you have a police union stepping out into the community and saying, if our officers are doing wrong, we want you to complain on them. If a citizen is interested in making a complaint against an officer because they felt that they were mistreated in any way, they can make a complaint at any Houston Police Department facility in the city. They can also make a complaint at any LULAC office or any NAACP office. We try to make it as easy as possible so that no one can ever say, well, I wanted to make a complaint, but I just I didn't know where to go or I didn't know how. Once they come in, they can fill out a statement that essentially says, you know, this officer did this. They have to sign and swear out the statement. At that point, it's forwarded to IED, who does a full investigation, including interviewing the officer and having a letter written by the officer to explain what happened in the situation. At that point, there'll be a determination as to whether any misconduct took place or if there was any violation of our general orders. If there was a violation, the officer will receive discipline according to a discipline manual that we have. And if it, if it was found that he didn't do anything wrong, then, of course, he'll be exonerated. And finally, Joe tells us about the types of incidents most likely to make the news. Shootings. Last year, we had two million citizen contacts. Two million. Shootings that we had as a result of contact with two million people, 32 a majority of which were armed or attempted to use their vehicle as a weapon on the officer. Anytime our officer is involved in a shooting, okay, we have HPD Internal Affairs out there, HPD Homicide Division. Then we have the District Attorney's Office, who is completely an independent of the police department, investigating this shooting. In addition to that, there's a layer on top of that, and that is the Department of Justice. In the 32 shootings that we had last year, we had eight of them looked at by the Department of Justice that were referred to them just to make sure that it was justified. And, and these shootings go to a grand jury. So folks seem to think that there's, that there's some sort of, oh, well, the officers just get a free pass and there's no investigation. Actually, there's even more of an investigation than if it were a normal shooting out on the street because we understand how sensitive this issue is. I just wish that people, oh, we also have an independent police oversight board, which is a board of citizens that look at every single 
uh, Houston Police Department shooting to deem it whether they think it's justified or not. So there are so many layers in place, but people don't seem to talk about anything like that when an officer gets involved in shooting. Before we have any facts, before we have any information, people like to jump to conclusions and make assumptions about what occurred. We preach patience. Let's wait until the investigation is completed. If it's decided that the officer acted improperly, well, then he's going to have to pay the piper and he's going to have to deal with the consequences of his actions. But if they did the job properly, then, then all of this needs to stop. We, we can't hang all these officers out to dry in the media before we have the facts. And that's the kind of storytelling we do here on Our American Stories. A serious cop trying to make community relations as good as possible and holding officers accountable. Joe Gamaldi, second vice president, Houston Police Officers Union. This is Our American Stories. American stories, and we love bringing you great interviews about great books. And today, we read about a book in the Wall Street Journal review section, and the review is titled 400 Years of Huddled Masses Yearning to Breathe Free. And that review began as such quote, When Annie Moore stepped ashore at Ellis Island on New Year's Day in 1892, she became the first immigrant to enter the U.S. through the government's new reception center. She would be followed by 15 million others over the next 62 years. But Annie, who had emigrated from Cork, Ireland, with her two younger brothers, was already an anomaly in the mutable world of immigration. Most of her fellow passengers were no longer the Irish who had dominated New York immigration for the better part of the 19th century, but impoverished Eastern European Jews. By the end of World War I, they would account for 600,000 of New York's 2 million foreign-born residents. Within a century, their share would dwindle, as had the great waves of Italians, Irish, Germans, and other Europeans who took root in the city to be replaced by a migration of global dimensions. It is the protean nature of these waves, from 17th century Dutch to 21st century Dominicans, that is the subject of Tyler Anbinder's ambitious book, City of Dreams, the 400-year epic history of immigrant New York. And Tyler, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. And and Tyler, this is an ambitious project. What made you decide to pick it? Well, in in part, it was because of the the scope of it. I've written two other books before, and I wanted wanted something that was uh, a challenge. And it seemed like telling a 400-year story would be a challenge both from research-wise and in terms of uh, kind of a narrative challenge. How can you make it make such a long story not be encyclopedic? How can you make it, it personality-driven and bi- biographically-driven? And that was what I strove to do. And, and let's talk about New York immigration in particular, because that's what the book's about. But what were the other major ports of entry besides Ellis Island in our nation's history before Ellis Island? In other words, how, Tyler, did folks come here? Well, New York had, has been the place more immigrants have landed than any other place for, for almost all of American history. Before Ellis Island opened in 1892, you had a, 
an immigration reception station called Castle Garden in New York. It was at the very southern tip of Manhattan, and it was it was in an, in an abandoned theater is where they did the processing of the immigrants, and that was the place that it went on for you know the 40 years before Ellis Island opened, and, and before that, before the 1850s, immigrants just walked off the ship and into America. There was no processing or questioning or testing at all. They just came. They just came. Yep. And by the way, a lot of people believe that through the self-selection process, anyone who would get it on a ship and come across for what was then weeks, uh, well, you pretty much, if you were going to go through all that, you were probably on your way to citizenship and, and being a good citizen anyway, because what a thing to do to leave your home country and everything else you knew behind. Yes, it, it's hard for, for anyone who's not an immigrant to to kind of imagine what it must be like. Uh, it's, it's really a wrenching experience to, to read the memoirs of, and to talk to immigrants themselves. You know, you're leaving behind everything you've known. You're going into this this unknown territory in, in every sense. And even if you have friends who are there, even if you have relatives who are there, still, you're just you're uprooting everything you've known and uh, and starting, in a sense, from scratch. Yeah, it's true. And and by the way, I have a grand grandfather on one side who came from Lebanon, and he took me to Ellis Island, and he always took me to the uh, July 4th induction ceremonies in Jersey City. And then I had a grandfather on the Italian side, and both of them told me about just how terrified they were and how hard it was. Uh, and they reinforced that in me, that this is no duck walk coming over here, and I'd better be grateful for all they did because it was really hard. And a lot of their family members back home thought they were just plumb crazy, Tyler. Yeah, I mean that that raises a couple of points. One is one is the fact that for a lot of immigrants, they, they come to America not so much for themselves, but for their for their descendants, for their kids and their grandkids. They know that you know their life may not improve in America, but they but they do know that that the opportunities for their kids and their grandkids will be much greater than they would have been had those kids and grandkids stayed in in Ireland or Lebanon. Yep. And that's, a, that's something that was instilled in so many of the people I knew. I, I grew up in a place where everybody was related to a grandfather, mostly, who would, or a grandmother who had come here from the, from the mother country, so to speak, to come to this new adoptive home. And all the grandparents drilled into us uh, that, that idea of gratitude. I'm worried that the next generation now removed doesn't know those people, hasn't met those people, and hasn't looked in their eye when they tell those early stories, Tyler. And I think your book does a real service in this regard. Was that one of the things you were going after in a, in a, in a way? It really was. I, you know, I feel like more and more Americans are are kind of remote from the experiences of their immigrant ancestors, and and that was part of the reason to write the book, and part of the reason I wanted to cover so much ground. A lot of people said that I was crazy to try to cover so much in one book, but uh, what I wanted to do was something so that no matter when your ancestor came to America, whether they were, you know, came in the 1600s or whether they came in the 1960s, that that their experience would be told. Well, let's talk, start from the beginning. And why is Ellis Island commissioned? What what happened there? What what was the reason that happened? Well, over the course of the 19th century, Americans start to become more and more anxious about immigrants, more and more fearful that somehow immigrants are becoming less desirable, that the people who are coming to the United States aren't aren't the same, to use the term used at the time, 
aren't of the same quality. And so, so Congress begins enacting more and more laws to try to, to keep out people who they believed were undesirable. And so they start with things like intelligence. So they, right. they, uh, they ban what they call imbeciles and, and things of that sort. So they're starting to put limits and think about limits, and thus the talk about immigration and the tough talk about immigration, well, it's not new. And we're listening to Tyler Anbinder, professor at George Washington University. The book City of Dreams, the 400-year epic history of immigrant New York. More on our American stories with the professor after these messages. Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Tyler Anbinder, the book City of Dreams, the 400-year epic history of immigrant New York. And, and Tyler, talk about, uh, in context, uh, how significant to New York's history immigration had been, both in terms of numbers and in terms of impact, and that's for better or for worse. Oh, immigrants have always played a key part in the life of New York City. Um, just because so many immigrants land in New York and, and so often they don't have enough money or enough strength to go any further, uh, New York has been the home always to huge numbers of immigrants. And we tend to think that, that today must be, you know, the peak of immigrants in New York's history where 37% of New York City residents are foreign-born. But, but back in the 1850s, you had more than half of New York's residents, uh, New York's residents foreign-born and 70% of its adults being immigrants. So so we're far from the peak, and, and it's always been that way. And it's good to know the history, because sometimes hysteria can be muted by actual history. Uh, let's start at the beginning. Who were the first wave of immigrants into New York? What were they like? What was their impact? Well, the very first immigrants in New York were primarily Dutch and Belgian, uh, people coming from, from uh, Western Europe, the, the Dutch set up New Amsterdam in the 1620s as a, as a trading post, as a place that you could, you could bring furs from the interior of the United States or what was then just North America and then ship them to Europe. And the Dutch run New, York, uh, New Amsterdam for its first 40 years. And then the, Br- the British take it over and it becomes a, an English colony and, and it begins filling with English immigrants. And soon, soon Scots come thereafter, uh, people in Scotland not finding it harder to, to make ends meet than they than they would have liked. And they heard about the great opportunities you had in America. And so a lot of them come to New York. And so in its first 100, 150 years, the Dutch and then the English and then the Scots. And, and by the time right before the American Revolution, the Irish are, are the biggest immigrant group. And so it, it's constantly changing. And the Wall Street Journal wrote this uh, at, at, during this earlier period, while all was not harmonious, there were brawls, racial and religious strife, slavery, and battles between colonists and Indians. The inhabitants, for the most part, managed to get along, 
motivated more by commerce than creed, a far cry from the theocracy of Puritan New England. And so how do these cultures, they're, all, they're, they're from different places. It's hard now to think of these places as different, but they are different types of folks. Uh, talk about the differences and the commonalities between these groups, and then let's talk about the next wave of immigrants, and I think things got even more interesting. Well, it's it's just like you say. You, you think, well, the Dutch and the Belgians and the English, how different could they be? They're all from Western Europe, but they saw themselves as totally different, different languages. In particular, uh, the different different uh, strains of Protestantism, and that was a big deal in, in early New York. So the Dutch didn't want Lutherans in New York. They didn't want Quakers in New York. They didn't want Jews in New York, and they... Uh, Peter Stuyvesant, the, the first successful uh, governor of the colony, uh, was very quick to ban uh, immigrants from almost any religious group. Uh, his Dutch bosses, his, uh, his employers back in Holland, would, would complain and say, no, you can't do this. But being several thousand miles away, uh, Stuyvesant could pretty much do what he wanted. And so even though we think of New York as this kind of place of, of immigrant harmony in its early history, there was always a lot of tension and, and fighting among the immigrants. And then in come, in the mid-1840s, the Irish immigrants. Uh, talk about the impact they had. And my goodness, Protestants and Catholics starting to really go at it. And the Irish weren't exactly totally welcome by the old-line immigrants, were they? No, and especially, that's especially the case after... Uh, the mid-1840s, when the potato famine hits Ireland. And so what had been a constant flow of Irish into America in general, and New York in particular, became a, a real flood in the late 1840s and early 1850s. And, and literally tens of thousands of Irish immigrants settled in New York each year. It kind of remade the city so that, that by, you know, by the 1850s, there was really virtually no part of New York that wasn't dominated by Irish immigrants. There were a few a few neighborhoods where the Germans predominated, but other than that, it became an Irish town. And and like you said, the the native born uh, Protestants in particular did not like that the Irish immigrants were predominantly Catholic, um, and they clashed over over that. And in particular, the role of religion in schools. And so it was it was a a very heated. Uh, a very heated time between Protestants and Catholics in that period. Yeah, and I think for many people, they think, well, what's the difference? They're both Christians. Oh, my goodness, read up, read up indeed. You've written before also about the enclave of Five Points, that notorious slum between Canal Street and City Hall. Talk about that part of the city at that time. I mean, there's, there's been a great movie made about it, but uh, talk about that. So Five Points was the the neighborhood in New York that was most synonymous with Irish immigrants, and in particular, poor Irish immigrants. It was built over where, where a lake had once been, so the ground was very damp, and it shifted quickly uh, after things were built on it, and so it became a part of, the, of uh, New York that nobody wanted to live in, uh, so only the poorest of the poor would settle there, and in this period, that was, those were the uh, Irish famine immigrants. Um, and so it becomes notorious for its, its crowded and dilapidated tenements. It also becomes notorious for crime and for, for drunkenness. Um, but it becomes famous for other things. It's where some of the city's most famous dance halls were, and you have, uh, uh, you have a lot of innovation in dance there, African-Americans and Irish dancing together and, and 
creating new forms of dance like tap dance, which uh, seems to have been created there by the by the immigrants and the African Americans there. So it was a it was an, an exciting place to be, but also one that could be very hard to survive in. And talk about also the influx of a new kind of immigrant, and that's the Italians. And some of the, you know, right now it always amuses me when people call me a white American. I'm half Lebanese, half Italian. Even the Census Bureau didn't consider me white. And I'd love to know what those Northern Europeans and even the Irish started to think when these Italians came to town. Right. So the very same neighborhoods where the Irish uh, had dominated in the first half of the 19th century, uh, Italian immigrants start to dominate in the later half of the 19th century. And Five Points was one of those places. And, and the Italian immigration starts like the Irish had as kind of a trickle, but it snowballs through chain migration where one person comes and then they tell their relatives, oh, it's great here, you should come too. And sometimes they even pay for their relatives to come immigrate. And so by the late 19th century, um, there were more Italians coming to the United States than people from any other place. And, and New York became as famous for its Italian immigrants by 1900 as it had been for its Irish immigrants a generation earlier. And, and New York had developed several little Italys, not just the one we know today, down by Mulberry Street, but uh, further uptown and even uh, in Harlem. Yep. And uh, the, the, the great restaurant Rayo's is in that place up on 114th and Pleasant. That used to be an Italian neighborhood. And that may be the last sign and vestige of that old Italian neighborhood, the great restaurant, the legendary restaurant Rayo's. And and also, the, 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 the Italians were Catholics. So how did this impact the, the Catholic and Protestant battle that was going on inside New York? I mean, you, you ultimately have this remarkable Catholic school complex built in New York City. Tremendous numbers of elementary schools, high schools. Why did that all happen? That's a great question. So you would imagine that, that with all these uh, Italian Catholics coming to join the Irish Catholics, that the Irish would be thrilled because the, the Catholic population of the city is getting much larger, and they make up a much higher proportion of the city's population. They, they would have more political clout. But in fact, the Italians and the Irish got along very badly. Um, the Irish resented the Italians coming to, quote-unquote, their neighborhoods and starting to dominate them. The Irish, in particular, hated having to go to, to Mass and other services in their Catholic churches with the Italians. They hated it so much that in, in many cases they would ban the Italian immigrants from, uh, from uh, Mass in the main uh, part of the church and, and, ba- and banish them to the basement. That was the case in Five Points and in, up in, uh, at the, the main church in Italian Harlem and in many parts of the city. So uh, the Italians then come to resent the Irish, who, uh, who they feel are treating them, treating them just as badly as had the, uh, their bosses and their uh, landlords in Italy. Well, we'll hold that thought and so much for peace and harmony. And it turns out the new immigrants treat the even new immigrants, well, the same way they got treated. And it's sort of, well, it's just the way it is. It's like being that first-year class at West Point. Good luck to you. The City of Dreams, the 400-year epic history of immigrant New York by historian Tyler Anbiner, a professor at George Washington University. We continue our conversation after these messages.
is Our American Stories. We continue with Tyler Anbinder. The City of Dreams is the book. Immigration is the subject. And you're listening to the different beats as we're coming in and out of New York City. And it covers every kind of music, every kind of food. And before we get into the, the wave of Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, and then ultimately Haitians, I did want to cover two other groups with you, Professor, the Jews, because we spent an hour talking about the life of Irving Berlin. And Rudyard Kipling had come to New York, had gone to those, those terrible, poor neighborhoods, and he had written about how he had seen poverty perhaps as bad as he had seen in Bombay, but that he had seen the spirit particularly of the American Jew. And he said he had good feelings that America would be in good hands with those people. And he was just so thoroughly impressed with the Jews and the American Jews in particular, America itself too. But talk about the American Jews and their remarkable uh, migration story and then just what they managed to do despite persistent discrimination in a city uh, that, that at times welcomed them but at times didn't. Sure. Where the, there had been Jews living in New York ever since the 1600s, even when it was New Amsterdam. Um, and the Jews become a big presence in the city, really starting in the late 1800s, when you get uh, a mass migration of East European Jews coming to America. And more so than any other immigrant group, Jews tended to stay in New York City itself. Um, and in part, that's because they came to dominate the garment industry, which was one of New York's biggest industries. And, and these Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe are coming to the United States in part because of persecution at the hands of the czars of Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also for the same you know, reasons for economic uh, opportunity that others have come from. So th- th- that combination of, of incentives brought uh, several million Jews to America, And as I say, the largest number of them settled in New York City, so that they became the largest immigrant group in New York City by the beginning of the 20th century. And how they impact the city economically and culturally, given the percentage of the population, is just remarkable, Professor. Talk about that. Yeah. uh, So what you have is, you know, as you say, it it kind of runs the gamut. So so one of the big uh, things uh, that that becomes a dominant part of New York City as a result of this big Jewish immigration is the is New York's uh, Jewish deli uh, and New Yorkers of every ethnic stripe will eventually start start eating pastrami and corned beef sandwiches at, at Jewish delis and, and even matzo ball soup and, and uh, so that's one way in which it happens. Jews also become a very important players in New York City politics um, at first, uh, you know, eat much faster than say the Italians who are coming at the same time. Jews uh, in part because they're persecuted. It tends to be the, the persecuted immigrants like the Irish and the Jews who become active in politics first. Um, and so Jews begin uh, electing members of Congress uh, very early in the 20th century and members of the uh, New York State legislature and so forth. And so that becomes another thing that they become kind of renowned for among New York's immigrants. And then in the sciences and the arts, too, um, the impact in the next generation, the garment workers... Well, those executives and those business owners, and it's mostly business owners and small business owners, uh, want their kids to go to school. They want them to go to college. And uh, soon there's this dominance in the sciences that's pretty remarkable, again, given the, given the percentage of folks 
that Jews represent in the aggregate population. Right. So one of the ways in which uh, that happens is you have, you know, you have a free, uh, you have free uh, college education in New York in those days at the city colleges. And so places like City College, Brooklyn College, you know, will we'll end up turning out Nobel laureates because the, the children of these garment workers, uh, the, you know, the garment workers want their kids to have the success that they couldn't have uh, either in back in Europe or that, that their parents couldn't have in America. And so they push their kids very hard to, to get good educations and to, to go into fields like the sciences uh, that, will, that will bring them fame and fortune, and, and they do. Yeah, and I think status, too. I think this is a great way through fame and fortune to get the respect and the status that the Jews felt they deserved, and indeed they did. Let's talk about the the migration from Puerto Rico uh, and also the Dominican Republic and Haiti, because it's fascinating. And I know some some folks, you know, when you talk go out to parts of Queens and you look at per capita income of African-Americans who've come from Haiti, it outstrips many white parts of New York City. Uh, the heavy dependence and dominance in the medical field particularly. Talk about these groups. They're, they're different, uh, they're dynamic, and they change the city once again. Sure. Puerto Ricans start coming to New York in, in large numbers in the 1920s. This is a result of the immigration restrictions that Congress puts in place. Uh, so Italian immigration plummets because Italians are restricted to just a tiny fraction of their former numbers. Same with Eastern European Jews. Um, and yet New York employers still want immigrants to do uh, work, especially at the lowest end of the, of the economic ladder. Puerto Ricans are American citizens, so they're exempt from the immigration restrictions. And so they start coming to New York in the 1920s as soon as the, as the uh, immigration restrictions are put in place on, on people from other parts of the world. And they start moving into fields like um, domestic service, into factory work, and eventually even into the garment industry. Um, and, and then, uh, as far as Dominicans are concerned, Dominicans become, the, today they're the largest immigrant group in New York City. Um, and their interest in coming to America also developed in part out of um, American foreign policy. We, we, uh, we intervene and occupy the Dominican Republic several times in the early 20th century, and uh, especially a second time in the 1960s. And, and that intervention led many Dominicans to want to come to the United States. Uh, and that begins in the 1960s in earnest and, uh, uh, and blossoms after that so that uh, soon Dominicans become, uh, will surpass Puerto Ricans as the largest Latino group in New York. Uh, then as far as uh, people from the, from the English-speaking parts of the Caribbean are concerned, that also becomes a, a huge immigrant uh, a huge immigrant group in the starting in the 1960s. Uh, those islands aren't doing very well economically, um, and in particular, people find that they can get, as you said, into into like the health field. And so, huge numbers of nurses and home health aides uh, will will come and find that they can get work in New York City's hospitals and, and in the medical industry generally. And so, that becomes a huge attraction to those immigrants as well. And last but not least, I can't leave out Little Odessa. Brighton Beach and that part of Brooklyn and the Russian, that next Russian uh, uh, wave, because the early Russian wave was, of course, Jews emigrating from Russia. But this was just Russians of all kinds coming from Russia. Uh, talk about that, that wave of Russians that came 
and now populate such a wide swath of that particular part of Brooklyn and around the whole city. Sure. So that that uh, that little Odessa in the very southern part of Brooklyn by Br- Brighton Beach, that begins actually as primarily still Jewish immigrants uh, coming out during the, the kind of thaw in the Cold War in the 1970s. Um, but then, as you say, by uh, later on, uh, people from the Soviet Union start summoning uh, Jews as well as non-Jews. And, and whether they're Jewish or not, they'll, they'll tend, if they're living in Europe, to go uh, to go to South Brooklyn, where they find people who speak Russian, and they find the Russian foods that they like. Uh, and so of all the parts of New York today, um, Brighton Beach has the second highest concentration of foreign-born in all the country. Eighty percent of the people who live in certain parts of Brighton Beach are, are foreign-born. And so that gives you a sense of, the, uh, of how concentrated that uh, immigrant neighborhood is. That's a remarkable number. And we're talking to Professor Tyler Anbinder. The book City of Dreams, the 400-year epic history of immigrant New York. In our last segment, we'll get into some particular people who influenced the outcome of this great city and this great country, the country founded by and continuing to be fueled by immigrants. This is Our American Stories. Seventy-nine years ago, I celebrated my sixth birthday in the black, dark hole of a creaking ship crammed with wretched, praying, terrorized immigrants. Thirteen days of misery. And then the ship stopped. And my father grabbed me and carried me up the steep iron stairs to the deck. And then he shouted, Chico, look at that. At first, all I saw was a deck full of people on their knees, crying and rejoicing. My father cried, that's the greatest light since the star of Bethlehem. I looked up and there was the statue of a great lady, taller than the church steeple, holding a lamp over the land we were about to enter. And my father said, it's the light of freedom, Chico. Remember that. Freedom. And you're listening to Frank Capper, the man who brought us such inimitable movies as It's a Wonderful Life and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And the year was 1903. And he remembered it vividly, and that's him at the American Film Institute getting the Lifetime Achievement Award and telling that story to a mesmerized audience that included Bob Hope and Betty Davis. By the time that talk was over, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. And we're talking about New York City, New York, and immigration. We're talking about the book City of Dreams, and we're talking to Professor Tyler Anbinder, who teaches at the George Washington University. And let's get into some specific individuals now, if we can, Professor. Let's start with Felix Brannigan. Tell us about him. Felix Brannigan was an Irish immigrant uh, who came to New York with the wave of potato famine immigrants. 
Um, and he moved around like many immigrants. He, he actually moved to Pittsburgh and then joined the uh, Army in the Civil War. And I talk about Felix Brannigan in the book because uh, he's famous for writing a letter in which he uh, says some very uh, nasty things about African Americans. He doesn't want, uh, he's writing to his sister about the, the idea of letting them serve in the Army. And he says, no, they shouldn't be allowed to serve in the Army, and that, uh, that the Irish feel that, uh, feel that it would be degrading to have to serve in the Army with, with blacks. And so he's kind of famous for, for that. And, and that quote kind of typifies the, the attitudes that are said to lead to the New York City draft riots. Well, I, I found Brannigan's story was, was more complicated than, than that. I found that later in the war, and this wasn't, well, hasn't been uh, documented before, that later in the war, he actually uh, has a change of heart, and he actually volunteers to lead a uh, regiment of African-American troops uh, towards the end of the war. And so in 1865 and 1866, he becomes a lieutenant uh, in a, a unit of African-Americans. And then after the war, he uh, goes on to get a law degree, uh, and then is made a U.S. attorney and is sent to Mississippi. And there in Mississippi, he's, his main job is to prosecute Klansmen who are, who are uh, persecuting African Americans. And so I use the story of Felix Brannigan to show that, you know, that not just Abraham Lincoln, but many Americans kind of grew in their racial attitudes towards during the war and started out with, with kind of racist sentiments. Uh, but by the end of the war, the experience has kind of changed their minds and changed their hearts. Indeed. I mean, uh, if you watch the movie Bronx Tale, which I know that particular neighborhood very well, and it's Robert De Niro starred in it, Chaz Palminteri wrote it, it's about a dividing line in New York City in the 1960s between black and Italian. And my goodness, don't cross that street. It wasn't just the South that had racial strife, folks. Uh, It was Boston, it was New York, all over the country. Blacks and whites uh, didn't get along in many measures, and only in the South was it by law that blacks and white weren't allowed to live together. But in much of the other parts of the country, the people just, well, they did it anyway. It wasn't the law, but they just lived apart. Uh, talk about Jacob Reese, if you could. What an important person, perhaps uh, one of the, if not the most important New Yorker as it relates to immigrant life. Jacob Reese was, was not your typical immigrant in the sense that he came to New York from Denmark uh, not a place that sent a lot of immigrants to New York. And he comes not for economic reasons or persecution, but uh, to heal a broken heart. He had been spurned by the, the woman he'd proposed marriage to, and so he decided he had to get as far away from her as possible, and that meant coming to America. And he starts out uh, penniless and, uh, and, and has a hard time making it, but he's very determined. He's very ambitious, something that you find is is a common thread in, in immigration history. Uh, immigrants particularly tend to be ambitious, hardworking people. And Reese eventually eventually works his way up to becoming a newspaper reporter. And he, he's assigned to cover the very tenements where the immigrants like him had once lived. And he writes about how terrible the conditions are there. Yet the writing doesn't seem to have much impact. So he decides uh, to take photographs using the new uh, the new invention of flash photography and take photographs of the conditions in the tenement. Uh, and he publishes these, these images, and these have the impact that his writing never could. And so Reese is known today as the first photojournalist, and uh, his, his images and his writings about tenements uh, help bring about most of the modern 
uh, most of the modern housing regulation you have in big cities and, and helps reform the tenements and, and, and kind of end the worst uh, the worst conditions that immigrants had suffered through. Indeed, and so if you're ever swimming or find yourself an occasion to be at Reese Park swimming and enjoying that beautiful park, you'll know uh, whom it's named after. Let's talk about James Rivington because, well, not all immigrant stories end well. Uh, well, yeah, you have James Rivington was a uh, an immigrant during the American Revolution, and he was a printer, and he he was the kind of person who, you know, a, a printer, a lot of uh, immigrants during the American Revolution left New York. Um, if they were pro-British, they stayed. If they were pro-American, they left. But Rivington, being a printer, he didn't really have much of an opportunity to do that. It was hard to move a printing press. So he stayed in New York uh, and became the printer to the, to the British during the American Revolution in New York. When the revolution ends, and uh, uh, when the revolution ends, and the the British uh, have to evacuate New York, um, Rivington stays, and a lot of people are surprised that he that he does that. Um, but he does, and and he gets he, he's very uh, badly treated by the Americans who resent the pro-British propaganda he had uh, he had printed, and he's eventually uh, run out of New York as a result. And so, and this happens many times. I mean, not every story is a fluid, easy one. Tell us a story about the Statue of Liberty and its meaning, Professor. I think most of us are unaware that its meaning today wasn't, in fact, the original meaning. No, when the Statue of Liberty was first conceived by the French in the 1860s, they wanted it to be a monument to emancipation, a monument to the emancipation of the slaves during the Civil War. Uh, that was the original intent of the monument. Um, later on, uh, when the idea uh, to, to build the statue is, is having trouble catching on, both the French and the American backers of the project play down that aspect of its original intent and play up the idea of it just being a, a monument uh, commemorating the friendly relations between France and the United States. And that's how it's that's how it's thought of when it opens in the 1880s. And then there's, there's a, 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 third, uh, a third way it's perceived, and that, that happens as a result of Emma Lazarus and her poem about, uh, you know, send me your tired uh, and, and so forth, your teeming masses uh, yearning to breathe free. And, and that poem, uh, Lazarus writes as in an attempt to raise money to help build the pedestal for the statue. Um, and once it becomes clear, as, as soon as the statue opens, that immigrants begin to associate the statue with their dreams of coming to America, their dreams of, of freedom, as, as Frank Capra mentioned in your, in your uh, thing there, um, only then, by the beginning of the 20th century, do Americans start to associate the Statue of Liberty with immigration and immigrant dreams, something that the immigrants started doing almost as soon as they started seeing the statue. You know, I'm going to close with this thought because I think two of the main themes of your book is that what's old is new and what's new is old. And the two examples being this. One, immigrants have never assimilated as much and as easily as, as we quite think, that it's always been hard. And anti-immigrant sentiment is a constant of American history, despite our tradition of being a nation of immigrants. Talk about both of those points. we got a minute and a half left. Sure. The... 
what you find when you write about uh, American immigration history is how little it changes, that, that immigrants tend to come for the same things to better their lives, and in particular, better the lives of their children, um, that when they get to America, they, they tend not to assimilate very much. We, we tend to think, why don't today's immigrants assimilate like my grandparents did? But the truth is, our, our grandparents didn't assimilate very much we tend to, to look at them through rose-colored glasses. And so really immigrants of every generation are pretty much like immigrants of every generation. And then in terms of anti-immigrant sentiment, um, yes, this is a constant. Uh, for as long as there have been immigrants coming to the United States, there has been anti-immigrant sentiment. Um, and Americans, some Americans have always feared immigrants and thought that that their generation of immigrants was ruining America in a way immigrants had never done before. So. So my feeling is when you hear that uh, today, that, that today's immigrants are a threat, you need to know that your grandparents or great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents were seen as a threat, too. So true. And thank you, Professor, for joining us. The book is City of Dreams, the 400-year epic history of immigrant New York. The writer, Tyler Anbinder, professor at George Washington University. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And this is Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to listen to all that we do. Drive.